So let's dive into God's word, Mark chapter 11, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Mark 11, starting here in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought, in, who brought into the temple and who overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. This time that we can gather as the body of Christ to worship you, to hear you speak to us from your word. Father, we lift up just even our Laredo mission team, Lord, even now as Pastor Nathan is, is preaching and, and the team is there continuing to minister. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak through Nathan, Lord, that through the words that you have given him, Lord, as he declares your gospel message, that people would believe and trust in Christ for salvation. Lord, I, I pray even for the mission team as they go throughout the rest of this week and just doing various tasks and leading VBS and Bible study, Lord, that you would bless their efforts. You would give them opportunities for good gospel growth. And Father, while we gather here this morning, Lord, I, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and our souls that we would walk away more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would be trees that seek to bear much fruit for the good of others and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oftentimes we see in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament prophets would declare a message from God and they would do it oftentimes in a very dramatic way. 
You think about Moses. Moses, uh, by, by the power given to him, uh, gives us the, the ten plagues there in Egypt. And as the ten plagues take place, he would come back with a message of God's sovereignty and might. And that Pharaoh should allow the children of Israel to be released from bondage. You, you think about Elijah. Uh, uh, Elijah who calls fire from heaven. And he does this in this, this battle with the prophets of Baal. And as fire comes from heaven, he then begins to declare about the holiness of God and the judgment that was to come upon the king. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah, as he is, is preaching, he strips off his clothes to talk about how the nation of Israel itself will be stripped of its glory and greatness for the judgment to come. Jeremiah, at one point as he is preaching, is walking around with a yoke upon his neck, talking about how the king of Babylon would also be in bondage like a yoke upon his neck. The prophet Jeremiah. That was prophet Jeremiah. I meant to say Jeremiah. I think I said Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the one who had a replica of the city of Jerusalem. And in the replica of the city of Jerusalem, he said that this little replica here will be destroyed just like the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. The prophet Hosea took for himself a, a wife who was a harlot, who was wayward, and used that story to talk about the waywardness that would happen in the nation of Israel. All of those messages were messages from God and there was this dramatic effect to them that helped declare and convey the truth that God was seeking to make known to his people. And Jesus, in a very similar fashion, here in Mark 11, has that same dramatic effect. He curses a fig tree, and as he is cursing this fig tree, this dramatic effect for a prophetic message about the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel and the judgment to come that would take place. And in this story, this is on the Monday after Palm Sunday, Jesus has already entered into the city in the triumphal entry. And now, as he sees what is taking place, he is going to give a declaration about the spiritual condition of the nation. Now, these two stories, these events that take place, the, the cursing of the fig tree and the condemning of the temple or the cleansing of the temple are, are two separate events, but they are woven together for one purpose and one me message to convey this truth that Jesus is seeking to declare. You cannot take one apart from the other because you can't fully begin to understand what's happening here. Now, this passage does have some controversy to it. Controversy to some, I don't think it's controversial, but to some this passage is controversial because it seems that Jesus is acting in a way that is different from his character. 
There are some that suggest that Jesus isn't acting very Christ-like in this manner. Because he's cursing an innocent fig tree, and he's disrupting the temple operations that were allowed to happen according to Scripture. And some suggest that there is something awry with this passage. For, for instance, a couple New Testament scholars, T.W. Manson said, he said, this is a miraculous tale of wasted power in the service of ill temperance. Saying that Jesus is doing this miraculous event and it's out of anger. Uh, William Barclay says that this story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. Now, this is a historical truth. God's word is truthful. It is perfect. It is without error. This happened. It happened exactly as Mark, the author, said it happened. You see, the, the problem is not, Jesus is not ill-temperate. Jesus is not petulant. The problem is not on the part of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem is with our own inability to fully grasp the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. You see, we see Jesus too often as meek and lowly. And we don't recognize that he is a righteous judge who is also holy. And in this passage, Jesus is condemning and cursing the fruitlessness of the nation. It is the fruitlessness of individuals and congregations. And the two are woven together. And so this morning, church, I, I simply want to look at this passage. And I have two simple points, but, but from this, I want us to ask a couple questions. First, is my life, is it like this tree? Is it fruitless and just a bunch of leaves? Is my life fruitless and a bunch of leaves? Is our church, the second question, is our church fruitless and a bunch of of least. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And so I want to take time walking through this text and applying it to, to the individual, our personal lives, but also applying this to the life and the body here at Calvary Hills Baptist Church. And so first, the first thing we see is that Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Look at me again here in the scriptures, verse 12. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now, Drop down to verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This passage, we, we clearly see 
the divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, but it begins with his humanity. Here is Jesus, the bread of life, the, the living water, and Jesus is hungry. And it says that Jesus sought for something to eat, and he sought a fig tree that was in the distance. Now, fig trees were common in, in the Middle East and in that region of Palestine and other areas. And so it's common to see fig trees, but fig trees in and of themselves are really rich with symbolic meaning in Scripture. In fact, you look in the Old Testament, 50 plus times you see God describes the nation of Israel like a fig tree. The way it would be in bloom, the way that he would water it, the, the way that it grew, he would use that to describe the nation of Israel. And so it's not accidental, it is not coincidental that here is Jesus and part of his story as as he's going to the temple, he passes a fig tree and he looks to the fig tree. But when he comes to this tree, as he seeks fruit, there is no fruit. Now, now Mark says that the tree is in leaf which means the tree is advertising something. The tree has leaves, which means it's advertising that fruit should be present. But when Jesus goes for it, it said there is nothing but leaves. There's no fruit there. Now, Mark notes that he says that it was not the season for figs. Now, even though this is not the season for figs, it does not excuse the barrenness of the tree, nor does it call to question Jesus and his ministry and his divinity. It doesn't call to question any of that. What we, what we find is that the, the majority, the vast majority of fig trees that in that area, their season to produce fruit was the late summer or early fall. But sometimes you would see during the springtime, especially during Passover, there would be these buds on the tree. Kind of a, a pre-fruit or, or it would be a bud of a fig. And it would be there, and there were other trees that were rare in that area, but there were fig trees that did bloom and did have fruit in the springtime. But the general consensus in that area, by, by both Jesus and archaeologists and historians alike, is that even now, when a fig tree has leaves, it means that fruit should be present. Because the fruit would come first and the leaves would come second. And so this tree has leaves. So it would bear to, to match the rule that this tree should have fruit. There should be at least some edible buds that Jesus could eat. But when he goes to this tree, as promising as it looks, he is disappointed in the fact that there is nothing. This tree is barren. It is nothing but a bunch of leaves. See, this, this tree, it's pretending to be something it was not. This tree is pretending to be fruitful, but it is barren. There is nothing 
there. And so, verse 14, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Here is the author of this tree, the creator of life, speaking to his creation. And as he speaks to his creation, it's a word of condemnation. What's interesting about this miracle, because as we see in verse 20 and 21, this tree is withered away. This is the only miracle in the Gospels of destruction. You might think of Mark 5 where Jesus cast out a demon into pigs and the pigs go off into the sea. Well, Jesus did not cast them off, right? But this is the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels. And, and Jesus gives this word saying, no one will eat fruit of you again. Uh, again, suggests that at one time, there may have been fruit. But the way it appears and the way moving forward, there would never be fruit. Because this tree pretended to be something it was not, it would never again be what it was meant to be. And so, here we see. There's a lot of questions you might have to ask yourself here, right? And you ask your question, why, why would Jesus do this? Now, that's a good question, church, but I think it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question because I don't think it gets to the heart of the matter here. I don't think it gets to what Jesus is seeking to convey in his message. Because the right question we ought to ask ourselves is, am I like this tree? Am I just a bunch of leaves? Is there any fruit in my life? Because if there's anything Jesus despises, Jesus despises hypocrisy. And this tree is acting hypocritical. The, the word that we come to know as hypocrite, it, it comes from the Greek word that symbolizes somebody who was an actor. Somebody who would get on stage, they would put on a mask, they would play a part, and then they would get off stage, and then they were their real person. That's where we get the word hypocrite. And Jesus reserves his harshest rebuke for hypocrites. Now, we are all sinners in need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. But a hypocrite is a person who on the outside portrays that they are something in front of others that they are not before God. It's a special type of sinner. And Jesus, in the Gospels, never calls the ill-religious hypocrites. He never calls the pagans hypocrites. He never calls the tax collector Hypocrites. He never calls the harlots hypocrites. No, he, he reserves that word for the religious leaders that portrayed that they were something to others that they were not behind closed doors before God the Father. And Jesus has a harsh word for hypocrites. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says these words to the Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus says of the Pharisees, you're, you're wearing a mask. You portray that you live for me. You portray and you act like you honor me. But on the inside, the real you doesn't live for me. The real you doesn't honor me. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus will promote or, or, or have these seven woes. And, and one of the woes to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, you clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, Jesus reserves that harshest rebuke to those who pretend to be something that they are not. And this tree is being hypocritical. It is showing that it is in leaf. It should be bearing fruit, but there is no fruit to be seen. It is just a bunch of leaves. You see, let's bring this a little close. You know, church folk, we are real good about looking good on Sunday. But boy, when Monday comes, it can be real different, can't it? We can come smiling and grinning and, and we can be excited to be with the body of Christ. But then when it comes to the rest of the week, are we living the same life that we portray when we gather together in worship of God? Does my Monday look like my Sunday? Because the hypocrite is putting the mask on Sunday and the rest of the week is the real you, not the reverse. And Jesus is saying, and Jesus is looking, yes, at this tree, but he also looks at the individual. Jesus is not looking for leaves. Jesus is looking in your life that your life ought to bear fruit for the good of others and the glory of God. And anything outside of that is a bunch of leaves. See, without, without Christ, life is a bunch of leaves. And leaves will wither away like this tree and it will be destroyed. And so church, does your life, does it look like this tree? Is it a tree that shows a lot of leaves, but really is just barren? There's no fruit there? there there's, there's no substance there? Or is your life 
Like the tree mentioned in Psalm chapter 1. That bears fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. Is your life bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? The mission of God? Is there fruit of salvation? Is there fruit of praise and worship? Is there fruit of ministry and the mission of God in your life? But the second thing we see in this passage, not only does Jesus curse this fig tree, but as the story continues, he condemns a fruitless temple. Remember, these two are connected. And so verse 15, it says, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they all went out of the city. Now, here we see this is the second day in a row that Jesus has been to the temple. On Sunday, what we know is Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into the city. There is this triumphal entry. There are palm branches swaying. There are people crying out, Hosanna. And at the end of the passage, if we look in verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. And so what we see happening is Jesus, after his triumphal entry, walks into Jerusalem. And as he walks in, he goes to the temple. He takes a look. And as he takes a look, he doesn't like what he sees. He's examining the fruit, or lack thereof, in the temple with the intention to come and cleanse the temple on the next day to condemn what is taking place. Because the temple was just like the barren tree. It showed promise. It was busy. It's a lot of leaves. But there was no fruit. Now we think about the temple. We had to think about the history of the temple. The, the first temple was built by Solomon. And after several uh, uh, years of, of ministry there and, and sacrifice, it was destroyed because of the judgment of God. Later, after captivity, Zerubbabel comes back with several others and they begin to rebuild the temple. It's not that glorious compared to Solomon's temple. Eventually, it would be destroyed. And then, then would come Herod the not-so-great, right? Right? And Herod would build this new temple, the temple we know that we see in the scriptures. And the temple that Herod builds is miraculous. It is big. It is better. It is huge, right? Like it's a, it's a big temple. It had marble walls and columns. The, the, the paved ways were in marble. There was gold that was ornate throughout it. It was a glorious temple. It took up 40 acres of the city of Jerusalem. It took up a lot of land mass. It was a glorious temple. But it would then be destroyed later. And in the temple... 
there's these different courts. And you've, you've may or may not be aware of that based on your study of scripture, but there was what was known as the court of the Gentiles. It was the outermost court. And, and this, this is where Jesus is. The, the court of the Gentiles would be a lot like if, if here we are, the, the parking lot in the back is the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as they can get to the presence of God. And that's where Jesus is. That's where all this is taking place as he is driving out the money changers and as he is uh, driving out those who are selling animals. Now, they were there for legitimate purposes, right? Verse 15, it talks about the, those who bought and sold in the temple, the money changers. Now, the money changers had a purpose. The purpose was that you had Jews from all over the region that come to the temple to give their offering to God, their sacrifice to God. The problem is, is that if you came from a foreign nation, your money, your coin, oftentimes had a pagan god or an idolatrous uh, image that was on it. And you couldn't go before the holy God to give a holy offering to him with a pagan coin. And so what they decided to do was you could exchange your coin. You could exchange your Roman coinage for uh, what was called Tyrian coins or, or Jewish coins, and, and, and it was accepted in the temple. Now, of course, it was a convenience fee that was astronomical, Right? But then there was also the selling of animals, right? You had people traveling. And so they couldn't bring their sacrifice before God because they're traveling. So as a convenience, they also sold these animals. They would sell sheep. They would sell oxen. But you see, it also talks about pigeons, right? Pigeons were for those who couldn't afford the oxen or the sheep. If you think back to, to Luke chapter 2. When Mary and Joseph are going to present Jesus into the temple, their offering before God is two turtle doves or two pigeons. All that was allowed. It was part of the process. But, but more than that, verse 16, it says Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, the temple was large. It was 40 acres in the city of Jerusalem. But what happened was because it was such a large land mass, if, if I wanted to get to the other side of Jerusalem, I had to go around the temple. I had to go the long way and I had to go all the way around to get to the other side of town. And so at some point in history at that time, people began to think, you know, I could just cut through the court of the Gentiles. And so people began to cut through as a shortcut through the court of the Gentiles. Now imagine, here you are. We are all Gentiles. We're trying to spend time in prayer and praise of God, and all you hear is money changers and the clanking of money, and you hear animals making noises and people haggling over the price of animals, and all the while, there are people who are also speed walking through the court of the Gentiles to get to the other side of town to take care of their business. And you're just trying to praise God and spend time in prayer. And this, this is where Jesus is. Which means Jesus just didn't care about what was happening in the holy of holies with the sacrifice. It also meant he cared about what was taking place on the outskirts of the temple with the core of the Gentiles. 
So let's bring that today. God not only cares about what is said in the parking lot, is what's said in the parking lot God glorifying as opposed to what is coming forth from the pulpit? Are they both honoring to God? Are they glorifying to God? We as a church believe in expository preaching because it is the word of God that is power. It is life. It is the word of God that should shape my heart and my mind and change my habits and the way I live my life. And so the word should affect my life in such a way that it changes who I am, the way I live. The way Jesus views things is that there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. All of life is sacred. And Jesus, in the midst of this, is trying to teach about the value that there is no separation in life, but all of life is meant to be for the glory of him. And so in verse 17, it says he's teaching them. Now, Here's Jesus flipping over tables. He's not flipping over tables and then sitting down saying, come a little closer, I've got a Bible study. No, the, the image is that he is doing this and through his actions, they are teaching, they are conveying the truth. And when they don't understand it, then he is quoting scripture. He is quoting Isaiah 56, 7, talking about how my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now this temple, in the first century, this was called Herod's temple. It's not what I'm calling it, but, but it was called Herod's temple. Herod was the one who built it. Herod's the one who financed it. Herod's the one who determined what was to take place in its midst. And Jesus comes here and stands in the midst of Herod's temple and says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus stands in the midst of this temple and he says, this is my house. And because it is my house, I determine what will take place in my house. Now, for anyone that has raised children, right? Uh, this past Friday, Liz was helping uh, one of our friends and our neighbors and she was running some errands. And so I told the kids, I said, hey, let's Make sure that the living room is clean before mommy gets home. Wouldn't that be great? And at some point in the midst of cleaning and in the midst of doing that, Daniel, because it's the living room, it's the shared space, Daniel says something to the effect of, isn't it our house? To which I responded, let's, let's try that again, right? Wh whose house is it? Of course, he said it was mommy and daddy, so he got, got the right answer, right? But there has been times that I have walked through our house and as I'm walking through the house, I'm quoting the, the great poet Trace Atkins, every light in the house is on. And I'm turning lights off because no one's been in the room for 20 to 30 minutes and it's just on. And something comes out of my mouth to the effect of, when you have your own home, you can keep the lights on all you want. But while you're in my house, we're going to turn the lights off if it's not being used because we're not going to waste electricity. If you reserve the right to say what happens in your house, don't you think Jesus reserves the right to say what happens in his house? 
And, and here is Jesus in the midst of the temple, and he's absolutely clear. His house is to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. All people are welcome. All nations are welcome. No matter where you are on the outskirts of life or anything, you are welcome into his home. It's a house of prayer, but the temple system, the temple system that day, it had perverted worship. It had become more about extortion. It had become more about the business of the temple. It became more about the maintenance. How do we maintain this temple than it had become about the worship of God? It was not about the ministry of God. It was not about the mission of God. You think about here, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56. If you go back and you read Isaiah 56, it's all about God's desire to save those who are on the outskirts, the Gentile, the sojourner. It's all about God's glory and being made known and in that all people being drawn to him. And Jesus quotes and says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Now as we bring this in a little closer, as a church, we have the ability sometimes to get real fixated on business and maintenance and not the ministry of God. See, see here, that's what happened in the temple. All about the, the business. All about the, the maintenance. They're not focusing on, on the ministry of God. They're not focusing on the, the mission of God. And sometimes, churches, we can get real busy, focused on some good things. But they're not the best things. We can get real focused on maintaining things rather than realize that God has given each individual follower of Christ and his church a mission, and that mission is about declaring the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a house of prayer for all nations. It is our church. Are we, and when I say church, I mean that's collective individuals, followers of Christ who make up the body of Christ. Are we a people of prayer? Are we a people who are dependent upon God for all things? Are we seeking to reach all nations? Are all nations and all peoples welcome here? Is Jesus the one who has full reign over his church? doesn't matter who built this church. I, I honestly don't know who built it. But I, I know that there was a lot of money and, and di different individuals and who, who have been involved in the growth and, and the building of this church. But this is Christ's church. He's the one who reigns here. Now, I want to I close our time in, in Matthew chapter 21 because in Matthew's gospel, he records the, the same thing that's happening here, but Matthew adds one or two things that I think is very interesting. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 14 and 16, after all this takes place, it says, and the blind, 
And the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that, that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to him, yes, have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You see what's happening here. See, what's also happening that Mark does not record for us, but the blind are made to see. The lame are able to walk again. Jesus heals them. These were people who were not allowed in certain parts of the temple, and yet Jesus heals them. More than that, it talks about how these people, as they're healed, they're, they're walking away, leaving. Their lives forever changed because they met Jesus. But it also talks about how children and babes, they're crying out. They are worshiping God. They're calling Hosanna while the religious leaders are complaining. Church, what, what we see here is that when we seek to magnify Jesus, when we lift up Jesus far and above ourselves, and it's all about the glory of Christ and his mission and his will, what we see is lives changed. The blind who can see, the lame who can walk, people are healed. The next generation is praising God and the glories of his name. But that begins when we live lives of authenticity. That we're not just merely leaves, but there is fruit. When we as a church live an authentic community. You see, does your life bear fruit? Is it a bunch of leaves? Is your life bearing fruit for the good of others and the glory of God? Is our church, when I say church, I mean us who make it up as followers of Christ, are we a people of prayer? Are we dependent upon God? for all things? Are we welcoming all peoples and nations to himself? Does he have the full reign? Or are we just a bunch of leaves? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.